Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in the same group. Hey, Gary. Hey, Kristen. Today, we're going to jump back into the corporate AMT or CAMT and cover a few of the key issues addressed in Notice 2023-64, the latest guidance on CAMT issued by the IRS in September. Not surprisingly, given that this is an international tax podcast, we'll focus on the international aspects of CAMT addressed by the notice, including the rules pertaining to Foreign Parented Multinational Groups, or FPMGs, CFCs, and CAMP FTCs. We'll also talk about at least one issue that was not addressed by the notice, the treatment of CFC dividends and how taxpayers might approach that issue without guidance. For our discussion today, we're joined by the CAMP International Dream Team. Ron Nabrowski, a principal and co-lead of KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Jonathan Galen, a newly minted managing director in the group. And Svan Kosar, a senior manager. Thank you all for joining us today. Good to be here, Gary. Great to be back, Gary. Thanks for having me back, Gary. To refresh everyone on the CAMT basics before we dive into the contents of the notice, the corporate AMT applies for tax years beginning in 2023. And in general, large corporate taxpayers are subject to CAMT if they have over $1 billion of annual average adjusted financial statement income, or AFSI, measured over any three-year period starting in a tax year ending after 2019. Aggregation rules apply such that for purposes of the $1 billion test, a taxpayer will need to include the adjusted financial statement income of all members of its Section 52 single employer group. Also, special rules apply for foreign parented multinational groups, which we'll discuss in more detail shortly. So just because a corporation is in scope for CAMT doesn't necessarily mean it has a CAMT liability. A taxpayer only has a CAMT liability to the extent that its tentative minimum tax, which is 15% of AFSI minus its CAMT foreign tax credit, is greater than the taxpayer's regular tax liability plus its beat less its regular tax foreign tax credit. For some taxpayers, any CAMT liability owed in a year will be only a temporary increase in cash tax for that year because a CAMT liability generates a CAMT credit, which potentially can be used to offset future regular tax in a year that regular tax plus beat is greater than the tentative minimum tax. A word of caution, however, the limitations to the CAMT credit can be counterintuitive, and in particular, taxpayers with significant general business credits may find it difficult or even impossible to utilize the credit. So with that high-level overview, Ron, can you give us an update on where we are in terms of CAMT guidance? Yeah, so so far we've had four notices. So one just kind of addressing insurance company issues, another that shut off the application of estimated taxes for 2023, 
And then two kind of big substantive guidance packages, including the notice we'll talk about today. It's interestingly, probably the most important thing to come out of the notices was what was in this most recent notice where it said, all the guidance we put out in 2023, it's all going to be put into proposed regulations, and those proposed regulations will be applicable from 2024 on, so one one twenty four. So it's interesting. They've given us guidance, but it isn't really the law of the land in 23, and we'll kind of wait to see what this proposed reg package ultimately says. With regard to that, the government said they're aiming for a year-end, so 12-31-23 delivery of the proposed regs. I, we'll see if that happens, but at least by early 24, we'll get a lot more clarity, at least, on how the government's looking to apply CAMT generally. So what are taxpayers expected to do for 2023 if the guidance is effective for 24? Yeah, it's interesting. We're starting with the statute, and the statute is challenging. It has 17 or so independent grants of reg authority, so we really do need that underlying guidance. But you start with the statute, you look at the notice for anything in there that's kind of directional and that maybe can give you some clarity on your own particular situation. But 23 is going to be a little bit of the Wild West. One other item to note is there's a draft form. It's form 4626 that's out there on Campti, And it shows a pretty labor-intensive information requirement for determining scope and liability. So probably just starting with that draft form to get a little sense of where things are at and how the CAMT might apply to you. Thanks, Ron. So now let's turn to some of the substance of Notice 2023-64. So we noted earlier that CAMT applies based on applicable financial statement income, that is financial statement income with certain adjustments. But under the statute, it isn't altogether clear in the case of a corporation that's part of a book consolidated group which financial statement is the applicable financial statement, so the starting point for determining financial statement income, and therefore AFSI. This is a particular area of concern for foreign parented groups, which often produce IFRS consolidated financial statements that include their U.S. subsidiaries. What does the notice tell us about the adjusted financial statements for these groups? Yeah, so for foreign parented multinational groups, which are really defined as kind of a foreign book consolidated group, you need to go start with that book consolidated financial statement. So really, this is going to be the ultimate foreign parents financial statement. Usually it's going to be an IFRS financial statement, and that's going to be the source of the separate financial statements for everybody in the group. Just the notice, at least, contemplates a pretty complicated, we've termed it as cracking, right? You have to start with this consolidated financial statement, and then you have to crack out the separate pieces. So there'll be a separate piece for the U.S. group. There'll be a separate piece for everything that's above the U.S. group or brother-sister to the U.S. group, and then separate pieces for everything that's below the U.S. group, whether it's CFCs, other foreign subsidiaries, other non-tax consolidated domestic subsidiaries or partnerships. And so you have to kind of break the pieces off, which is a little bit complicated. One interesting thing there is the notice says, well, hey, you're going to go do this cracking, this allocation based on the local books and records. And it's kind of an interesting, people have been arguing for 
and requesting, well, hey, can't we do this from the bottom up? Can't we use kind of our local books and records, especially for like the U.S. group and build out a financial statement? So the notice didn't quite go there, but it did say start with consolidation and then use local books and records to do the cracking, the derivation. And so is this really bottom up or is it top down? Is it some combination? Is it going to be whatever is kind of easiest and best for a taxpayer? And how is the IRS going to administer this? All sort of remains to be seen. And there's definitely a tension here. The notice sort of starts us as top down, crack that consolidated statement, but again, leaves a lot of room to rely on local books and records, which seems to suggest bottom up. Is there any indication as to why the government chose to require foreign parented multinational groups to, as you said, crack their consolidated financial statements rather than use their gap statements, particularly if those gap statements are audited? Yeah, there are a couple angles here. One is the CAMT statutory provision references section 451b5, which has this sort of rule of if you're in a book consolidated group, the book consolidated financial statement is all the members' financial statement. And so that kind of puts a thumb on the scale. They've also mentioned, at least in public remarks, that they were really focused here on the scoping rules. And so the CAMT scoping rules, like whether a foreign parented multinational group is subject to CAMT, you start with a billion dollar test that's looking at the whole foreign parented group. And so if you're starting there and looking at this billion dollar test, it kind of makes sense to go look at and start with foreign consolidation. So maybe there's some sense that this is mostly a scoping rule and maybe for liability, you'll have more latitude to really be bottom up and relying on U.S. books and records or U.S. gap financial statements. But the notice doesn't quite go that far. Thanks, Ron. So as noted earlier, special aggregation rules apply for foreign parented multinational groups. FPMGs are generally foreign parented multinational groups that consolidate at least one U.S. entity or PE for financial statement purposes. A U.S. member of an FPMG has to include the global AFSI of all other members of the group for purposes of the $1 billion test. And then there's another separate $100 million test that looks only to U.S. AFSI. Before the notice, there was some question about how this special FPMG aggregation rule coexists with the Section 52 single employer aggregation rule. Jonathan, what does the notice tell us about this? Thanks, Chris, and that's a great question. The notice says plainly that the $1 billion prong of the foreign parented multinational group test includes all the income of the members of the group and all the global income of the members of the Section 52 group as well. And this seems to be quite an expansive interpretation of the application of the foreign parented multinational group rule as it applies to that first prong and seems to go beyond what we would perceive the statute is requiring. Under the statute, to be sure, it was unclear and is unclear as to whether or not for purposes of that $1 billion first prong, the foreign parented multinational group rule would only look to entities that are members of the foreign parented group, which would, in this case, generally speaking, be those entities that are book consolidated with the foreign parent, or whether it would also include Section 52 group members. However, even in those situations where it could be read to also include Section 52 group members and was therefore additive to the 
rule that would include all of the foreign book consolidated members of the foreign parenting group, it could be read to only include the Section 52 group members U.S. AFSI. But that is not apparently what the interpretation was under the notice. As provided under the notice, it would include the Section 52 group worldwide global AFSI. And so this, as mentioned, is really a maximalist interpretation of the foreign parented multinational group scoping test. And it is to be seen whether this is a sign to come in terms of other interpretive issues to be resolved in future regs. Thanks. So as you said, clearly the notice takes a pretty broad view of the aggregation of rules. What taxpayers are likely to be the most affected by this interpretation? That's a great question. The starting point, of course, being that this interpretation only applies in the first instance to foreign parented multinational groups. So foreign parents, foreign parented groups that are book consolidated with a U.S. sub or foreign sub that has ECI. But even in that context, if we think about it, in most instances, at least that we've seen with our clients, generally the Section 52 group membership and the book consolidated group membership would overlap. However, there appears in certain contexts where this tends not to be the case. In those contexts, specifically, we've noticed as it relates to sovereign wealth funds, certain foreign pension funds, and other investment fund type structures, where it is not uncommon for groups of entities that are connected by greater than 50% ownership, and therefore members of the same Section 52 group, to not be book consolidated. And... The challenge here, and there was a challenge on the context of, if we think back to the application of the BEAT rules, determining the information necessary for concluding whether a taxpayer is an applicable taxpayer for that purpose. The challenge, whether it be the foreign pension fund or sovereign wealth fund context, is always getting the information with respect to other brother-sister portfolio groups or brother-sister investment structures that a particular portfolio group or investment structure that's owned by a sovereign, for instance, may not have visibility into or access to. So one rule that seems helpful for foreign corporations is the rule in the notice that turns off the depreciation adjustment for taxpayers that are not subject to U.S. tax. This seems to prevent the compliance nightmare for foreign parented multinational groups of trying to make it up, given that they would be on ADS with no bonus anyways, and so would seem to have no benefit. Jonathan, is this rule limited to FPMGs, or would you also turn off the depreciation adjustment for CFCs as well? That's a great question. The rule itself, the language, at least in the notice, is not explicitly limited to foreign parented multinational groups, and nor is it explicitly limited to scoping. So it does potentially appear to have a wider application. As it relates to CFCs, Based on the language in the notice, it would seem to include and apply to faux CFCs that do not themselves have a Section 958 inclusion U.S. shareholder. Where there is a 958A U.S. inclusion shareholder, however, we note that because the CFC assets are subject to depreciation for regular tax purposes in the hands of the U.S. shareholder, even though not in the hands of the CFC, because the CFC itself isn't directly subject to U.S. tax in most instances, assuming that it's not otherwise engaged in a U.S. trader business, then in the context of those CFCs, those with 958A U.S. shareholders, it would appear that this exception to the general tax depreciation rule would be turned off. And 
One may ask, well, why does it necessarily matter? Why should one care? One reason is because in the world post 958 before repeal, it is much easier to have CFCs. Well, certainly we have more faux CFCs, and it's very possible to have a faux CFC with a U.S. inclusion shareholder where that U.S. inclusion shareholder only has a 1% direct or indirect ownership interest. So it's something that one would have to be mindful of, depending, once again, on how this potential exception to the general rule is either broadened, constricted, or further clarified in future regs. Thanks, Jonathan. So let's talk about the application of CAMTI to CFC income. Section 56 Cap AC3, the so-called CFC adjustment rule, requires that a U.S. shareholder take into account its pro rata share of its CFC's net income or loss as adjusted under the rules for determining AFSI. The notice calls such CFC income adjusted net income or loss. Savan, what does the notice tell us about the determination of this CFC adjusted net income or loss? The notice doesn't go all the way in telling us how to determine the adjusted net income or loss of a CFC, but it does clarify a couple things. First, the notice clarifies that the CFC adjustment to a U.S. shareholder's AFSI applies on an aggregate basis, subject to the limitation in the statute that any overall negative CFC adjustment can't offset the taxpayer's AFSI directly, but is instead carried forward. So the netting of loss and income CFCs seemed to be the case to us under the statute as well, but it is a helpful clarification. And then the notice also notes that a CFC partner would take into account its distributive share of any partnership it owns, like in the general AFSI rule. And so there's some ambiguity in the notice as to whether this rule is turned off for CFCs in determining scope just like the general partnership rule is turned off for scope. But this seems to be a mistake, and the government has made public statements to that effect, so we fully expect that this will be corrected in regulations. Thanks, Savan. We all make mistakes. So let's turn now to what the notice says about the CAMTFTC. As Kristen noted before, the CAMTFTC is a reduction to your tentative minimum tax to determine your ultimate CAMTI liability. The statute provides a CAMTI FTC if an applicable corporation elects to credit its foreign taxes for regular tax purposes, and it allows a a CAMTI FTC for foreign taxes paid by the applicable corporation or a foreign branch, what we call a direct CAMTI FTC, and for foreign taxes paid by a CFC up to 15% of the overall CFC adjustment. This we call CFC taxes. With the excess CFC taxes carrying forward to the five succeeding tax years. In order to claim a CAMT FTC for both direct and CFC taxes, the taxes have to have been paid or accrued for US federal income tax purposes and quote, taken into account on the applicable corporation or CFC's AFS. As KPMG has noted in a couple common letters, this taken into account on the AFS language is not at all clear. 
and that it isn't a technical accounting term or a technical tax term. Savan, what does the notice tell us about this requirement? So Gary, I think the government read our comments and heard our prayers. The notice really leans into the paid or accrued for U.S. federal income tax prong. And so generally, a foreign tax will be eligible for a CAMTI FTC when it's paid or accrued for U.S. federal income tax purposes. The notice doesn't quite write the AFS prong out of the code, but it comes close by providing that the taken into account for purposes of the CAMTI FTC only means that it's reflected on the AFS. And so this is even if it's only as a journal entry and the tax doesn't actually run through the income tax line. So that certainly helps reduce uncertainty regarding this taken into account requirement. But what does that mean if a foreign tax is considered paid or accrued for U.S. federal income tax purposes in an earlier year and taken into account on the AFS in a later year? So I'm thinking, for example, of a foreign tax redetermination. Under the statute, we might have applied a later in time rule. What does the notice do? So here the notice tells us that when there's a foreign tax redetermination in a later year, that relation back does apply, such that the FTC can only be claimed in the earlier relation back year for CAMTI, even if it's taken into account in a later year on the AFS. Now, once the contested tax is settled, it will hit the AFS, and that should be enough to allow a CAMTI FTC in the relation back year. But the rule also tells us that the taxpayer has to have been an applicable corporation in the earlier year to claim the CAMTI FTC. So if the taxpayer wasn't subject to CAMTI yet, or if the tax relates back to a pre-CAMTI effective date year, there will be no CAMTI FTC available, even if the tax is taken into account on the AFS while the taxpayer is in scope for CAMTI. The point here, I think, is that it doesn't look like the government is going to allow pre-CAMTI FTCs to be carried forward in any way. Thanks, Savan. And that's a pretty big point for taxpayers who otherwise would be able to carry forward CAMTI FTCs from pre-2023. So one very helpful clarification is that an applicable corporation or CFC that is a partner in a partnership can claim a CAMTI FTC for its share of partnership taxes. Savan, KPMG wrote a couple of comment letters addressing this issue, which I've been told by reliable sources were brilliant. Can we declare victory now or are all our partnership FTC issues solved and done? I think we can definitely do a victory lap. Certainly, it's helpful for many taxpayers to know that they will be able to claim a CAMTI FTC for their, quote, share of partnership foreign taxes. But we still don't know how that share is supposed to be determined. In our comment letter, we suggested an approach that follows regular tax, creditable foreign tax expenditure rules under Section 704B as opposed to trying to match in some way to the adjustment for the distributive share of partnership AFSI. The notice doesn't say how to determine the partner's share of the partnership foreign taxes, but perhaps it's also noteworthy that they don't use the term distributive share. In any case, if regs 
will only apply to tax years starting in 2024, taxpayers will have to come up with a reasonable method to take into account a share of partnership taxes in 2023. So presumably there are a range of reasonable options here. Thanks, Yvonne. So another international item worth mentioning perhaps is that for certain CAMTI purposes, the statute provides that the principles of Section 882 apply in determining the AFC of a foreign corporation. It seems like it's unclear what it means to apply the principles of Section 882 in the CAMTI context. Jonathan, does the notice address this in any way? That's a great question. Although the notice doesn't tell us how to apply the principles of Section 882 to book income, it does clarify a couple things with respect to foreign corporations with ECI. And the first thing that it clarifies, and this was helpful for many clients out there that have been clamoring for relief, is the notice clarifies that treaty protected income is not included in AFSI which is, once again, helpful because the statute itself was a bit unclear on this point, and there were concerns that in the context of scoping, absent relief, certain taxpayers that are engaged in activities that give rise to ECI, but otherwise are afforded treaty protection, such that that income would be excluded from being attributable to a U.S. permit establishment, that such amount could be treated as taken into account in AFSI. And as I said, the notice helpfully clarified that such amounts should be excluded from AFSI. The second point, this one's a bit narrower, that was helpful, was that there's a coordination rule that is introduced in the notice that applies where a CFC is an applicable corporation that has ECI such that the ECI is not also picked up in the U.S. shareholders' CFC adjustment. The idea being that because the amount has already been picked up, would be picked up once by the CFC, for example, when the CFC is determining its AFSI as a separate tax filer, it would be an instance of double counting effectively if the U.S. shareholder was required to include that amount as well. Thanks, Jonathan. As we wrap up this episode, let's turn to something the notice doesn't fully address, the treatment of CFC dividends. We've talked about this issue before on this podcast, and KPMG wrote a comment letter about the potential double counting that results because ASCII appears to include both the CFC adjustment and dividends from corporations that aren't consolidated with the taxpayer for tax purposes, which would seem to plainly include CFCs. So on what, if anything, does the notice say about this issue? The notice clarifies that both the dividend rule in 56 cap A, C2, cap C, and the CFC adjustment rule in C3 apply to CFCs. It does seem to acknowledge the potential for double counting because there's a specific request for comments asking how to fix it. The comment letter we submitted in March suggested turning off the dividend rule for CFCs because of the full current year inclusion system that's provided by the CFC adjustment. And we initially thought when we saw this request for comments that maybe this means we're getting a full-blown CAMTI PTEP regime as opposed to a more simple just exclusion of CFC dividends. But given that they're saying that we should get regs by the end of the year, you know, maybe it makes us a little more hopeful that they are planning to adopt a more simple approach here. So to paraphrase an old 
colleague of mine while at Treasury, the government said regs would be out by the end of the year. They didn't say which year. In any case, as we discussed earlier, these proposed regs, even if they do come out by the end of this year, are expected to not be effective for 2023. Does that mean taxpayers are stuck double or even triple and quadruple counting CFC income by reason of dividends going up a chain? We noted in our comment letter that there's regulatory authority to prevent duplications, but how should taxpayers be thinking about dividends before the government exercises this authority? That's a really good question. If regulations come out in time, if they do come out in 2023 or early 24 or mid 2024, and if they permit reliance, it may be possible to apply whatever approach they propose. And we are fairly certain that the government is sympathetic to this problem and is going to try and eliminate double counting. However, more to your question, is there any way, I think, to self-help under the statute for 2023? First, a taxpayer would need to argue that the regulations are self-executing. And then even if we say that the double counting language is self-executing, what are the outward bounds of that language? You know, we mentioned aggregation applies for CFCs for the CFC adjustment. What if CFC income is offset by CFC losses? Maybe counting just means counting in the computation, or maybe double counting means actually including that amount in AFSI twice. Similarly, what if the EMP is earned in pre-CAMTI years? We argued in our comment letter that that should still be excluded because to include pre-CAMTI EMP is tantamount to applying CAMTI to pre-effective date years, even though not strictly double counting. But then also, what if more is distributed than is included in AFSI? How do we determine what amount specifically is double counted? What about pre-acquisition EMP? Once you start to think through these scenarios, it gets a lot harder to determine how to draw the lines, even if you think taxpayers can self-help to some extent absent regulations. That's helpful, Savan. Jonathan, does this dividend issue have implications for the scoping determination for foreign parented multinational groups? Interestingly enough, it seems to. When applying the foreign parented multinational group test, and this is particularly relevant in the context of that billion dollar prong, we're told that we take into account global AFSI. And so, as we know, AFSI includes this specific rule, that dividend rule, that takes into account dividends under U.S. tax principles. And there's nothing in the scoping rule itself that tells us that we would ignore that dividend rule. And what's a bit perplexing here is that we could have a situation if we apply that dividend rule under the billion dollar prong where we have a foreign parent that owns a U.S. sub, but then brother or sister to that U.S. sub is a foreign sub. And if that foreign sub makes a distribution that is a dividend or U.S. tax principles to its foreign parent, it appears that foreign parents AFSI would include that dividend. And you can imagine there are situations where we have tiers of entities and brother-sister chains that are completely outside the U.S. that may be engaging in various distribution transactions. And it would seem that by inclusion of those dividends, we would have a situation of effectively double counting, at least the effect of that, because in a fact pattern where these are chains of entities that are part of the same consolidated group or that are members of the same Section 52 group, the entirety of the dividend payor 
entity's earnings in that year already being picked up and taken into account in in AFSI under the aggregation rules. So we're taking into account effectively the underlying earnings as well as the distribution of those underlying earnings in AFSI, which feels a bit like double counting. And if applied in that manner is a situation where an entity that on its face, if we looked at the consolidated financial statement for the foreign parented group, it may look to be materially less than a billion dollars in aggregate, but it just taking into account those annual chains of distributions, it may be a situation where we blow right past that billion dollar threshold quite easily. Thanks, Jonathan. And thanks, Ron and Sivan, for joining us today to discuss the most recent CAMT notice and providing updates on what to expect as we head toward the end of 2023. As you all explained, it sounds like the notice raises almost as many questions as it resolves. And in any case, taxpayers are likely going to need to model their approach for 2023 and really think hard about whether to follow the statute or any combination of the CAMT notices that have been released so far. We'll keep an eye out for further guidance from Treasury, whether it be in notice or regulatory form, and whether it comes this year or next year. So as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. 